uh, the deacons and I just met. And I just want to take a few moments, even before I get into our announcements this morning, just uh, as a way that we would bring our hearts. Uh, Jack read a passage from Philippians 4 uh, this morning, 4-6, where it says, Rejoice and bring our prayers and supplication with thanksgiving to the Lord. at this time. I won't take the time to share all that this morning, but I do want to pray for our church. Uh, God is uh, doing something in the life of our church. We, we say this all the time. We know that there will be tribulation. There will be persecution in our church. We know, we know that. That is a promise from God that, that we stand on. We may not like that promise, uh, but we stand on God allows his people to go through suffering. And we know God uh, through God's word. He allows God's people to go through suffering for his glory and for our good. Uh, the prophet Isaiah tells us this, God's ways are not our ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our words are not his words. Uh, but we can trust this morning in the mighty hand of the Lord. So I just want to take a few moments to pray. Whatever God lays on your heart in this morning to pray. After a few moments of silence, I'll end uh, uh, with a, a word of prayer and then we'll jump into this morning's text. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, may this be a posture of our dependence to you, a great need for you. You are infinitely wise God that is in control of all things. Through our pain and through our suffering, you allow those things, though our finite minds and finite hearts do not comprehend fully on this side of eternity what you're doing. We may never. But through your promise, the Holy Spirit, we know that you comfort us. We know that you are with us, that you never leave us, that you nor, nor forsake us. And there's often moments, God, even in our prayer life when we do not have the words to utter that you tell us, the Holy Spirit will pray on our behalf. God, I think of those who are str struggling this morning, whether it's emotional, psychological, physical. That God, that God, you in the stillness, wherever they are, would speak to them. With great encouragement, with a gentle rebuke, with a loving reproof, if needed, God. Pray that you would do that in my own heart. God, we here at Powell's Chapel desperately need revival. An awakening of the heart through the Holy Spirit. It will only be through the revival, Lord Jesus, that we will continue to surrender to you. We need that not just here at our church. We, we need that in our country, God. Revival. 
God, we know because of history, you, you show that there's been great awakenings to the things that bring about godliness, and we need that. We live in terrifying times, uncertain times. But I pray that you would be our anchor and we'd hold fast to you. But in the same way that you presented yourself to the apostles at Pentecost, that you would do the same for us. You'd revive our hearts, you'd set us on fire, and then we'd become a light and salt into this dark world. We're desperate for you. We need you so much. And without you, you tell us so clearly, we can do nothing. And so this morning, even as we come to your text, to your word that you've given to us, we pray that through the Holy Spirit it would He would illuminate our minds, our hearts, our ears to hear from you. And we'd leave encouraged this morning. We would not leave nibbling on crumbs, but we would feast at your table this morning. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to preach and teach this morning. I look forward to what God has for us in this text this morning. But before I get there, just two quick announcements. On February the 10th, that's a Wednesday night at 6 o'clock here in the building, we will have our uh, February business meeting, so please uh, plan accordingly to that. Uh, We need your presence in order to have a business meeting, um, so please make arrangements to be here with us. And then on February the 13th, that's a Saturday, uh, just in uh, about two weeks, we're doing a Valentine's Day dinner. Uh, that is us. We'll bring you the food, or you can come here to the building and pick that up. You ought to um, have gotten an email from Tracy this week on all that, uh, so look for that. If you haven't got that email, find me. Uh, we will um, get you that email. Also, in, in the back this morning is a sign-up sheet to tell us what you want to eat, um, so please take that, fill that out, uh, and just leave it in the back as you leave this morning, or leave it in your pew Uh, one of us will come by and and grab that. So we need to know what you would like to eat, what time you want us to deliver it. Um, All that's on that piece of paper back there. Also, you can sign up for that online as well. Um, At this moment, I'd like to jump into God's holy word. We've been journaling through Genesis for the the last 18 months or so. We're coming uh, for for that final turn in in the book. Uh, we're, We're about eight chapters away from ending the book of Genesis. And again, I uh, have said this many times, I'll say it again, I I pray that this book has done for you what God has done for me, just uh, opening my eyes to things in the scriptures I I haven't seen. Uh, I remember early on in Bible college studying the book of Genesis and have read the book of Genesis over and over again, but it's uh, this time in his word over these last 18 months that God has just uh, awakened my heart uh, more and more to how, how uh, precious this book is and how just fundamental it is for what we believe to be true about God and ourselves and about what he would have for us. So here we are, Genesis chapter 42. Uh, this is the beginning, the title uh, of the message this morning. Uh, I, I relabeled the title after I sent it earlier this week. 
uh, is the journey to reconciliation. Sorry, Tracy, I, I always do that. I, I'll study and think I'm heading one direction. I'll start studying and God takes me another direction. But this is the journey to reconciliation. R- remember, here we are in the story that Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob and Joseph's brothers hated him so much. And so one day that Jacob told Joseph to go check on his brothers as they were feeding and tending to the flock. And as young Joseph was coming with his coat of many colors, the brothers recognized him from afar and they devised this plan to murder him, to kill him. Well, as you know, one of the brothers, Reuben, speaks up and says, no, no, let's not do that. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into the pit. So they throw him into the pit and then they they sell him off to the Ishmaelites. And then the Ishmaelites take him into captivity, into slavery, and then they sell him to, into Egypt, to Potiphar, one of the highest officials of the land, and he becomes a servant or a slave to Potiphar. And we see the hand of God all through his life that God was always with. You'll see that in his story. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God blessed Joseph, even in spite of his circumstances. And because of God's blessing on his life, everywhere that God had him and placed him, He rose in this place of power, in this place of promise, in this place of directing other people. He did that in Potiphar's house. And one day Potiphar's wife came and approached him and wanted to sleep with him. He said no. And then from then on, that lady came day after day after day, relentless because of who she saw Joseph to be. And one day she grabs Joseph by a coat and he flees and He is then accused of rape. Remember Potiphar said to him, I I can see it now. This is a crime that's punishable by death. And so there's something even in Potiphar said, I know my wife well enough. I I don't believe you did it, but I've got to give you consequences for even saying that you did it. And so he's thrown into prison. And again, God is with him in his circumstances and blesses him in his circumstances and he rises amongst the ranks as a prisoner. Then one day, the Pharaoh sends two of his highest officials, the cupbearer and the baker, into a prison for something they had done. They have two dreams about being, one, the baker being murdered, the two, the cupbearer being fulfilled back into his role. And Joseph gives those uh, interpretations of the dreams and says to the cupbearer, hey, just remember me. And, and all that happens, just remember me that I interpreted your dream. He forgets for two long years. After two long years, Pharaoh finally has a dream. The cupbearer remembers that there's a man in prison that can interpret dreams, and so they send for Joseph. Joseph tells them the dream. That's where we were last week. So Joseph interprets his dream and says, hey, there's going to be seven years of famine in the land and there's going to be seven years of plenty in the land. The plenty will come before the famine. So take all that is grown for those seven years and stockpile them for when disaster comes. And so that's where we are in this story. We're right in the middle of the famine of the land, those seven years. We've been through the seven years of plenty and now there's nothing left for the people to eat. So Jacob and his sons are at home starving, and that's what we'll start this morning. 
I love how the passage starts. It says, when Jacob, the father, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? This is Todd's interpretation of that passage. I don't know if you're a parent, if you've ever said this to, to your kids. What are you doing standing around doing nothing? That's in essence what Jacob is saying to his sons. Hey, do you not see we're starving? Do you not see there's nothing and all that you can do is stand here and look at each other? Basically, he says, do something. Doing something's better than nothing. And I guess they continue to stand there and look the way I did as, you know, 25-year-old young guy, just clueless. Jacob says, okay, if you're going to do nothing, I'm going to tell you exactly what you do. Just be obedient to what I'm going to tell you to do. He says, go down and buy. This is what you got to do. Get, get off your tail and go to Egypt. I'm sure it was a little bit more harsh than that. We see that in the text. Go do something. Go to Egypt and buy for us grain that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy the grain. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's youngest brother, or the youngest brother. I wonder in that moment, do you remember the last time that Jacob had sent a son down to do something? Do you remember what happened on the return? So Jacob sends the ten sons to go field, uh, to go care for the, the sheep. Then he tells Joseph to go watch over them. And then, he, then they come back and there's one missing again. Of course, Jacob's not going to send all his sons again. There's something in Jacob's mind. Hey, it didn't end well the last time all my sons were together in one place. I'm not going to send Benjamin. Remember who Benjamin was. Benjamin was the last son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Rachel had long been dead. It was the last thing that Jacob could hold on to of his loved wife that he'd worked so hard for. Remember, 14 years for her. So, of course, he's not going to send his sweet young son. And yet the boys then at this point begin their journey. And they begin their journey to what they would soon be found out as a place of reconciliation. Isn't it so interesting that so often God is working behind the scenes to do something? See, we can come to the text and we read that it's about a famine. No, this story is about what God had promised way back to Abraham. Remember what he said to Abraham in chapter 13. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, a great nation, a nation that is huge, so much so that you couldn't number them. That's in essence what God is doing. He's beginning to fulfill his promise. Because as we'll know, as you read into Exodus, that's what happens. That the people, because of this famine, the people of God, the Israelites, come into Egypt so that they can live. But when they get into Egypt, they grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And they become this mighty nation. So much so that this nation is a threat to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh then makes them to be slaves. Not only that, but this is a promise fulfilled of what he had given to Joseph 20 years ago. This, is, this text happens 20 years 
from the passage where he had had that dream. And he had that dream that one day his brothers would come to him and his brothers would bow down to him and his mother and his father would bow down to him. So God is going to start bringing this place of fulfilling his promises that he had made. Though it may seem to us that God is slow in fulfilling his promises, we know from the Apostle Peter that God's timing is not our timing. And what seems slow to us is quick to him, and what is quick to us is slow to him. But God will be faithful to fulfill his promises. So they are on this journey to reconciliation. And then it picks up now in verse 6. 6 through 25 is the story of the beginning of reconciliation. Now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them as like strangers and spoke roughly to him. Here's that moment that Joseph, and we'll see in the text. I don't know how quickly in that interaction the brothers and Joseph meet. And I don't know how quickly in the interaction that Joseph would have recognized his older brother. Have you ever been to a reunion before? Family reunion? I remember several different reunions. And the, the, the longer time passes, it seems like some of the cousins become unrecognizable, right? Maybe they, they, they put on some weight. Maybe they took some weight off. Maybe they have more kids. Maybe they have less hair, more hair. But there's these moments at the, the reunion, even with the ones that are unrecognizable, if you're there long enough, they become recognized. Well, that would have been true for Jacob's or Joseph's brothers, but not so for Joseph. R remember what had happened. These men were still Hebrews. They would have dressed like Hebrews. They would have spoken like Hebrews. They would have groomed like Hebrews. So here these Hebrew men come into Joseph's house or to his chamber but one is not like the others. Joseph no longer looks or acts or smells like a Hebrew. He looks and smells and acts like an Egyptian. I think that's where the song comes from. I won't do the movements. But in that moment, here Joseph is, that he looks like an Egyptian. He's talking like an Egyptian. And these ten brothers come in. And it says that they did not recognize him, but he recognized them. I wonder... This is where my brain goes. I wonder if it was the moment that they took a knee and they bowed their face before him. In that moment, man, I had a dream about this. I had a dream that one day that these brothers of mine would bow down to me. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that would have been the moment of the great reveal. That would have been the moment, that aha moment, that I would have shouted, I told you so, I told you so. That's the moment I would have made my identity known to them. And it would have been out of a wicked place. But we see Joseph. We see the heart of Joseph. Now the rest of the story, the rest of the text, he is very harsh with them. But I don't think we can put that on that he was a harsh man. I think he just began to be in the moment with his brothers. And four different times in the text, 
he accuses them of being a spy. I believe that we'll see in the text. He really wants to see if these men are changed men. Are they still the same men from 20 years ago that sold me into slavery and had nothing to do with me and had hatred in their heart? And so I believe that Joseph is setting all this up to see if there's true repentance. If there's true change, if God has really grabbed their hearts. And so he begins to talk to them harshly. He says to them, where do you come from? And he said, and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are sons of one man, one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Again, at that moment, I would have broken. If I hadn't revealed myself who I was when they bowed down to me, the moment they had said, hey, we're honest men, I'd have been like, yeah, right. Don't you remember? Because I remember. How many of us have done that to people? We've been wounded, and for 20 years we've held on to the wound. And the moment we have a chance to, to punch them in the mouth, we take our opportunity. That would have been Joseph's moment. They were honest men. They were not honest men. They were crooks. They were thieves. They were liars. They were cheats. They were scoundrels. They had premeditated murder on their hearts. They were not honest men. Unless, and this is what Joseph is trying to get to, had God so changed their hearts. He goes on to say that they were spies. They have this conversation back and forth. And this back and forth, it says in the text, by this you shall be tested. Joseph is testing his brothers. And the test is this. Hey, I'm going to give you some grain. But in giving you grain, I'm going to withhold one of your brothers. Simeon. I'm going to put Simeon. Well, first of all, I'm going to put all three, all ten of y'all in prison for three days. I think that was the slight hand that Joseph said, hey, you want to know what my life's been like for the last 20 years? I'll give you a taste of it for three days. And he says to them for those three days, and it says after the three days, he brings them out and he says, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, if this is really who you say you are, let your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. At least the rest go and carry the grain of the famine to your household and bring your youngest brother to me. This is verse 20. Bring back that young man. Bring back Benjamin, my whole brother. So your words will be verified to make sure you are honest men and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, in the truth, we are guilty concerning our brother that we saw the distress on his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. In that moment, just captured in your mind, they're in the chamber of Joseph. Remember at this point, you'll see in the text at this point, there's an interpreter. Joseph's been speaking to them in Egyptian. 
And so the Egyptian has to interpret into Hebrew. But all the while, the Hebrews are talking amongst themselves. Well, Joseph would have known every word they said. He didn't need an interpreter. So here the ten brothers gather in a huddle. Joseph is saying, man, are they changed? Are they changed? And finally, 20 years later, what do they do? They admit their guilt. They, they see where they had been wrong. You see, I, I believe that statement shows the heart of these men had been changed. People do, that do not walk with God do not come under the great conviction of the Holy Spirit to admit their faults. And so here they are, they admit their guilt. And Joseph hears them in their own language. It says, they did not know that Joseph understood them. Then he turned away from them and wept. I wonder if that moment had been 20 years in the waiting for Joseph. All I want to hear is I'm sorry. Anyone ever been there before? I just need to hear I'm sorry. That's all I need to hear. I just need to know if you're changed. Could you imagine 20 years he'd been waiting to hear those words? We are guilty. We are guilty for what we did. We cannot believe what we've done. He turns from them and he weeps. He doesn't turn to them with accusation. He doesn't turn to them with punishment. He doesn't turn to them and throw them back into prison. He doesn't turn to hold them hostage again. His heart is so broken by their repentance. When I read that passage, I thought to myself, has there been a place and a time in my life when someone has repented that it's brought me to utter tears? Because I've been longing to hear that. I'm sorry. Maybe that's what you're waiting for this morning. And I'll get that as a way of application this morning. And so he weeps, he turns, he walks out of the room, he splashes some water onto his face. Then he took Simeon and bound him before their eyes and puts him into prison to make sure they'll come back to fulfill what they said they would do. Yes, we'll come back with our father and we'll come back with our little brother. That's a promise. But even in the promise, even in the weeping, even in their forgiveness, there's this doubt. Why? Because I wonder how many other times people have said they're sorry to Joseph and went right back and did the exact opposite. Maybe that's true in your life. How many of us have heard, I'm guilty and I'm sorry, and yet they return to the very same thing they had, they had done to you? And so there's some doubt still in Joseph. But then we see that Joseph has this kind, compassionate, tender heart in verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sacks, and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. And so in that moment, even though he's not fully trusting, he does love his brothers. 
He does care for his brothers. They had come to buy grain. They leave with all the money they came with and then some. I want you to hear this, and I'm going to get to this in application. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I'll get to that at the the last. We see in this moment there's more than just forgiveness for Joseph to the brothers. So they load up their donkeys, their grain, and they depart. And then they're on their way. It says this in verse 27, the donkeys get hungry and they need to eat. So they find this lodge, this place to lodge. And he opens the sack to feed his donkeys. And he saw the money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? You see, they see this moment as a way of God's discipline in their life. That they had done something, and for 20 years they thought they got away with it. 20 years. And all of a sudden, the kindness of their brothers, of giving them their money back, and giving them all this stuff, brings them to this place that God, they feel the discipline of the Lord. Just a way of brief application. Your sin will always find you out. It might take 20 years. But we know this to be true. God disciplines those he loves. And it may take 20 years. And I pray it doesn't. You can be sure of this. It doesn't have to take 20 years. If you come to a place of true repentance today. But your sin will find you out. It's what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, what we do in the secret places will be shouted from the rooftops. Repent. Repent. So they make their journey home. They come to Jacob. And they begin to tell Jacob the story of what had happened to them. This is verse 30. The men, the Lord, the, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and told us that we were spies of the lands. But, he, but we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain and famine to your households and go on your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you. And you shall trade in the land. So they tell Jacob what had happened. It's interesting if you look at the text. They both leave some of the things out and they add some things to the text. They're still not honest men. They're trying to soften the blow that, hey, Simeon's not with us. They don't want to take that to the father. They want to soften the blow of what happened. And so they say, hey, he said this and this, and we'll be able to trade. If we do all this and take our brother back, we'll be able to trade in the land. He never said that, did he? 
No. Because here these men are still trying to work their magic. And then they begin to empty their sack in verse 35. Said so they emptied their sacks and behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they, they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to him, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. In that moment, Jacob is truly heartbroken. I wonder, these are my words, we don't see this in the text. I wonder if he said, boys, when is enough going to be enough? I've stopped. Trust and obey the Lord. And Jacob pours out his heart about losing his son and losing Simeon for all he knows. And no way am I going to send Benjamin down to be lost as well. And then Reuben speaks up. And Reuben says to his dad, kill my two sons. If I do not bring back the boy, put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey, that you, you are to make, you would bring me down to my gray hairs, to the sorrow of Sheol, or to hell. Jacob says, no way, I cannot do this. And that's where we stop in the text. We're going to pick up next week that Jacob comes around and he sends Jacob with the brothers. Or two, Jacob sends Benjamin with the brothers to Joseph. But in the midst of all this, we have Joseph waiting back in Egypt to be reconciled to his brother. A desire to be with him, a desire to see them, a desire to take care of him. You'll see that in the rest of the story. Of all the places Joseph could have taken revenge, he never did. Because he truly wanted reconciliation. Remember a few moments ago, I said there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. We are all called to forgive. All of us in this room are called to forgive. But just because you forgive someone does not mean you're reconciled to that person. Think of it in this way, in terms of this. If there's a murder and the one that murders, goes on trial, he's convicted of the murder. You, you've seen this on TV. Does time and time again. The family forgives them. But that doesn't mean they're reconciled to them. That doesn't mean they have to be reconciled to them. They're, they forgive them. They, they remove the weight of their sin from them. They, they remove the vengeance from them. But I am so glad that God did not stop with us just for forgiving us. All the murderous things that we have done in our heart, we do have a God that forgives us of everything we've ever done. But God took it one step further. And God reconciled us 
to himself. He desired relationship with us. You see, you, you can have forgiveness without reconciliation, but you cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. But here's the deal with reconciliation. It is way more costly than forgiveness. Reconciliation will cost you a lot. You see, with forgiveness, I don't ever have to trust the person ever again. But with reconciliation, I'm saying to the person I want to be reconciled is, I'll trust you again. I'll enter back into a relationship with you, friendship with you, to do life with you again. When I give someone forgiveness, I don't ever have to talk to that person ever again. But with reconciliation, there is always and must be relationship. And that is what God has so graciously given to us, not just forgiveness, but reconciliation. And it costs him everything. Think about it. God would be a just God simply to say no to forgiveness. He'd be a just God just to give us forgiveness. But not only is he a just God, a good God, but he is a compassionate and kind God that offers us forgiveness and reconciliation, and it costs him his son for us. And he says to us in Corinthians, he says to us, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now I give you the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Believers, we are not called simply to forgive. We are called to be reconciled to one another. I believe this with all of my heart. We would not be in the mess we were in in this country if the church would not just forgive one another, not just tolerate one another, but we would forgive and be moved into reconciliation with one another. And it will cost us a lot. It will cost us some of the things you believe to be true. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it will cost you something to be reconciled to your brother or sister. But God has called us not to be Democrats or Republicans, but to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to one another so that we can show the world that we're reconciled to God. That God loved us that much. He calls us now be reconciled to one another. To show that to the world. And we're in the mess we're in. Because we, the believer, the church, are unwilling to be reconciled with people that we see and act differently than us. Which is heartbreaking. And until that happens, we'll never have revival. And so I pray that we would be a church that doesn't offer just forgiveness, but we walk out true reconciliation, and it will start in this building. If there is someone in this building that you have grievances against, you are called by God to be reconciled to them today. Because that is what Christ has done for us. 
Let us be on the journey with Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God to be reconciled to one another. Let us pray. God, I'm grateful that in your kindness and your goodness and your mercy to us, you not only forgave us, but oh God, you reconciled us to yourself through Jesus Christ. How costly that was for you. And you're not calling us to anything, God, that you yourself did not do first. And so, God, I, I pray that this morning we'd be reminded of your great work on the cross, through your Son that reconciled us back to you. May we may have the ministry of reconciliation as well. Lead us, guide us, I pray. Amen. If you'd stand this morning for the benediction. This is the word of the Lord. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Grace and peace to you today. Just a reminder, on the, your way, gra grab one of those menus to fill out what you'd like for the Valentine's Day dinner and mark your calendars February the 10th for our business meeting.